Good morning. Welcome. Morning. Thank you. So today we're jumping into the Word in John chapter 16, and we are very close to the end um, of John and the Gospel. And so just to kind of rewind where we're at with the, the narrative here, uh, Jesus is speaking to his disciples on the last night of his life, at least his first life, his human life on earth. And we have been through the Last Supper, which was treated as a Passover meal by Jesus and his disciples. They've finished that. Judas has gone running out to betray Jesus, and he's long gone. And after he leaves, Jesus launches into a very, very personal discourse with his disciples about who he really is and what his mission is and the future. And this is what is really throwing them all. Because remember, as we've talked in the past, the people who followed Jesus were seeing Jesus through the lenses of the first century Jew who said, we are looking for a Messiah who is going to overthrow the Roman Empire, rise up in a military coup, be a king, a, a physical earthly king on a throne, and destroy all the enemies of the Jewish nation. <clears throat> well, Jesus for three years has been telling his disciples that at least now, meaning in the first century, that's not his role. His role was to come to change lives, to overturn the Jewish leadership structure and to welcome Gentiles into the fold of salvation and the covenant promises that God has given, had given to Abraham and the, and the Jewish people um, thousands of years before. All of this, of course, leads to a lot of confusion on the part of Jesus' followers, and especially his disciples, the 11 who are left here um, with Jesus at the end. <clears throat> and so Jesus is now talking about the future. Now, with all of that being said, with you know Jesus making it very clear that he is not the vanquishing, slaughtering, earthly king that they were all expecting, that's one thing to put over on them. Now he's starting to talk about the future, which is 12 hours from now, in which he will die, be killed, crucified on a cross, and his disciples are looking at him like, what the heck is going on here? Not only are you not the Messiah we thought you were, but you're going to die? That is unthinkable. We can't even, you didn't, you didn't do what you said we thought you were going to do. But it's not like he said he was going to do all of that. And so now Jesus is trying to open up to be as personal as he possibly can be and tell the 11 disciples who are left exactly what's about to happen. That brings us to chapter 16. And I would like a volunteer, please, to read. And, and look, it's important to remember that the New Testament that you have in English in front of you is a bit of an artificial construct. What I mean by that is the New Testament was written in Greek. The, jo the Gospel of John was written in Greek 2,000 years ago. Greek at the time was written in all caps with no spaces and no punctuation. There was no chapter or verse headings. There was no numbering or anything <laughs> like that. It all ran together. Over time, for the sake of... <laughs> for the sake of... Uh, uh, for ease of reading, the editors of the New Testament went back in and they did things for us like added chapters and they added verse numbers and they added titles to the different sections. Well, all of that's fine and good to organize when you're cracking the good book open to find a section, but it's difficult when you realize that they've kind of artificially put these, these divisions in where they don't really belong. And chapter 16 is... I mean, really, if you look at chapter kind of, I don't know, maybe 14 through, I think it would be 18, that's all just one big discord, 
discourse. And, and so when we pick up in chapter 16, it kind of just gets plopped right in the middle of a, of a very important speech he's giving. That's a continuation from 15. So if you're reading along at home or you're going to read this again, please remember that you really need to kind of start at the beginning of all of this and read it through as one big passage to understand. This is one big continuing speech here. And, and don't think that because I see the chapter 16, we're starting with a brand new idea in a brand new setting with a brand new bunch of people. It's not. So let's go ahead and read, and we're going to read chapter 16, and we're going to go one. Um, let's just do the first little piece here. It's a little easier. One to four. Who would like to read that very long verse? I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Thank you. Well, that's a very short statement, but what does that tell you? That people are going to die. Yeah. He knows. Well, I mean, it's also interesting, especially verse 2, regarding being expelled from the synagogues and hunted down and killed yeah. by people who believe they're doing the right thing. Um, who do you think one of those people were? I mean, the Apostle Paul comes to mind that he's kind of foretelling yeah. one of the most zealous persecutors is going yeah. to be one of your brothers. He That's didn't awesome. say that, but... Plus, I think he knew that uh, people would be falling falling away. He said, hey, I'm warning you now, this is probably going to happen, so be... You know, be aware of what's going on. Yep. And by this point, let's recap. When was the Gospel of John written? At least when do we think it was written? 60? 50? 55? Say it again. 55 or 60? Oh, bless your heart. <laughs> I haven't used that phrase in a while. I'll have to pull that one out. I listen. I good. am a good student. It's all good. <laughs> I don't You're know, August. am I right? <laughs> Here's our timeline. We have 180 to 180, give or take. Now, let's do 50 right in the middle. When did Jesus, when do we think Jesus was on the earth giving his ministry? Roughly the time period. 30 to 33. Yeah. So, somewhere in here, this would be 25. Somewhere around this very short window, around 30 to 33 AD, Jesus is giving his ministry on earth. <clears throat> He dies around 33 AD on the cross. Paul, the apostle, writes the first content that we now have in our New Testament, which, depending on what smart person you ask, was either Galatians, 1 Thessalonians, um, um, Colossians might have been in there. Anyway, you get my drift. That... Paul, somewhere around in the 50s, we'll say, this is 75, so right around here, somewhere in this region, the first content of the New Testament is being written. These are Paul's letters. Okay? Paul, we think, dies in the late 60s. We don't have any proof for when he died, but all of a sudden his writing stops after he writes 2 Timothy, I think it is. Is it 2 Timothy? This is the last one. His writing abruptly stops 
after he gives this big discourse about alluding to he's going to die, <clears throat> and we have no other letters circulated in the Mediterranean after that <clears throat> from him. So we're pretty sure he died, either of natural causes or we think the early church thought that he was martyred. Then we have this period where these letters are circulated. Now remember, this is <laughs> they didn't have the Zondervan uh, <laughs> online store that they could go and buy the New Testament and read all about Jesus and his life. I'll draw a map. <laughs> I'm going down a path. I might as well, right? And I'm drawing a map. <laughs> and it'll be terrible, but here we go. Okay. So we have uh, Hispania or Spain. We have the boot of Italy. Oh, it's horrible. We have Greece, Turkey. We have... My gosh, what is this? Mediterranean. <laughs> it kind of looks like a guitar. You are so sweet. It does. <laughs> yeah. Mediterranean <laughs> Sea. So we have the center of the universe, which is Rome. We have the center of the, the learned, cultured universe, which is Athens. Now oh, it's a horrible map. We have the Holy Land. This little speck here is Israel. And that's even too big. We have Egypt. Oh, it's horrible. It's a horrible map. <laughs> it's okay. We'll forgive you. Egypt. <laughs> and uh, uh, we have the ancient city of Carthage here. You get the idea. Okay. Um, this is Syria, Palestine. Uh, Tarsus, where um, uh, Paul was from. We have Syrian Antioch here, where the, the term Christian was first coined. Okay. Um, there were centers of Alexandria. There were centers of Christian churches throughout the Mediterranean that were springing up throughout. The, so as soon, soon as Jesus dies, and then of course is resurrected, the ministry of the Christian movement spreads from Israel at that point. It really hadn't gone anywhere outside of Israel because Jesus focused his area a little bit in Lebanon, um, up here in Syria, but mostly in Israel and mostly Galilee during his life. Once he has died and he is resurrected and he goes to, to heaven, <clears throat> the ministry spreads and now the, the Christian churches are spreading throughout the Mediterranean region. By the time you get to the time of Paul, there are churches, important churches throughout the Mediterranean region, probably Corinth. Oh, I didn't draw it right. There's. <laughs> eh. love this. Here, this is this is like modern Turkey. So Tarsus is there. This is horrible. <laughs> Ephesus is here. <laughs> Ephesus. So there are there are Christian churches throughout and in Jerusalem throughout the Mediterranean region. The letters that Paul wrote were the first written content that kind of affirmed who Jesus was and, what, and, and, and the beliefs of the church and that sort of thing. That was the only written content they had to rely on other than word of mouth. So these letters get sent. Initially, it's Paul's letters. They get sent and they get copied over and over in these uh, places, including Rome, where there were Christian churches or there were Christian um, uh, congregations. Over time, those letters get copied and they get sent back out and they get copied and they get sent back out. That's the reason we even have them today. After Paul dies, 
And people really are starting to realize that the people who knew Jesus firsthand are all dying. They're like, we got to write this down about, about the life of Jesus or else we're going to lose a lot of this information. So it's in this period that the Gospels are written. Again, as an attempt to say, the people are dying who knew him personally. We need to write this stuff down because no one really knows all of the story of Jesus. So all the Gospels are written here, it, the Synoptic Gospels. It is not until 90, we think, at least, that John's Gospel is finally written down. I thought you blessed my heart. Well, <laughs> you are blessed. That's an insult. <laughs> and don't get me wrong, you know, uh, God blesses you. Um, <laughs> Bust my heart so the so the synoptic gospels were written. You know, you weren't really wrong. You were kind of wrong. I was wrong. It's okay. It, it was Some of the letters were written then. Is yeah, what I'm getting at. Paul's letters were written then. Gospels uh -huh. later. Finally, John's gospel. What what am I getting at? The point is that circling way back to what Steve said, he's absolutely right because John knew Paul. They 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 worked together. In the period of, of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles, Paul has been dead for 30 years now. And you have to believe that, remember, <laughs> the other thing to keep in mind here is that there were a couple of very sharp persecutions of the Christians that have, it wasn't like as soon as the Christians started, the Romans started to persecute them. It wasn't like that at all. Nero persecutes the Christians, and we're sure of this, somewhere in the mid-60s. This is Nero's persecution. Now that was sharp, and it was severe, and it was brief, and it was really localized to <clears throat> probably mostly the Roman or Latin-speaking regions. That stops after Nero dies, and in fact the whole empire goes through a little bit of turmoil and, and chaos after Nero dies, and everything kind of gets reset again. Christians are off the hook again. Towards the end of the first century now, we have another persecution starting by the Roman elite who are not happy with the Christians. They're not happy with the fact that Christians don't worship the Roman emperors. They're not happy. They blame a lot of the Jewish turmoil, and kind of rightly so, on Christianity, not directly, but indirectly, by saying the Jews revolted and we destroyed Jerusalem in 70 because of the first Jewish war. We call it the first Roman Jewish war. That never really dies down. And the taste in the mouth of the Roman Empire from then on was the Jews are a big problem to us because they're causing a lot of turmoil in our empire, and we don't need that. And they start to look to the Christians to say, well, it's all the Christians' fault because they, they see the Christians as a sect of Judaism. They do not see them as a separate religion. So the Christians are growing like crazy here. There's, there's thousands and thousands of Christians now in the Roman Empire by the end of the first century, maybe 100,000 Christians. I don't know the number exactly. The persecutions start again. John is caught up in the middle of it. Where do we think John wrote the book of Revelation, which would be the last book of the Bible? Where do we think he wrote that from? The Isle of Patmos. Yeah, Isle of Patmos, which is, in this terrible map, right about here. It's really close to the Isle of Lesbos. We'll talk about that in another uh, lesson. <laughs> it's this rocky desert island with no, uh, I don't believe it has any source of water on it. It has to be brought in. And he's, he's banished there for his evangelism of Christianity. So, getting back to, this is all fresh, and that is fresh in the mind of the, of the author of John's Gospel as he is writing this. And so it is very raw. And he is very much remembering what Jesus said now and being like, duh, 
There was a reason he was saying all of this back then. And the author of, the John, of John's gospel is saying, you, we are going to be persecuted. We're being persecuted. We've been persecuted once a, you know, a few decades ago when Paul left us. We're being persecuted again. And at this point, you better believe this is the last apostle that knew Jesus of his original 12 disciples alive. Yeah, he's the last one left. He saw, saw or knew of all the other, you know, 10. <laughs> all were, pers- you know, persecuted and martyred. Church history records that all of the original 12 disciples were murdered or committed suicide. The suicide's the Judas one. All of the rest were murdered for their faith, except for John. John, it is thought, died a natural death. But he is the only one. So he's like 90 years old? He is 90 years old. He was probably around 14 years old, 15 years old, uh, when he knew Jesus. He was a teenager, almost certainly. And so he is a very old man at this point, you know, 80s, 90s. For that time? I didn't think they lived that long. The average lifespan in Judea in the first century was about 40 years old. This is a remarkably long life for the time, which made Jesus almost (laughs) middle-aged. I mean, he was. He was more than middle-aged. So, Don't think you're joining up for my cause because life is going to be great. This is the other thing. Remember, if you, if you had imagined Jesus as this, this conquering Messiah who was a king, going to overthrow the, the Roman Empire, what do you think is going to happen to you if you're on his side and he is vanquishing the world? Well, I was just thinking that, you know, they thought he was going to be like David, right? David yeah. was their, you know, their, mm-hmm. you know, best king kind of, yeah. you know, other, and like between David and Solomon, they had their most prosperous time in their entire history as a nation and so i think they thought that this was you know the messiah was going to be like david and so they were going to usher into you know not only having sovereignty over themselves but like the most prosperous you know back to the most prosperous time they've ever been in so they this is great i want to be on this train this is going to be awesome dude you know and remember too that judea the first century was terribly poor. There was a lot of poverty. Israel has never really been a wealthy state. Really, if you think about it, our modern state of Israel is the wealthiest it has ever been in its history. Maybe, of course, if you accept Solomon. And even then, most of the people didn't share in a lot of that wealth. Israel has always been a backwater. It's been poor. It's, um, it's not been a great trading center. It was a crossroads of civilization, which is what made it so important to all of the conquerors who came through there because it was the connection of Egypt and Mesopotamia with the rest of the known world. This is like your highway through, I don't know, Bakersfield, (laughs) Barstow. You ever been to those places? You're like, why does this place exist? Because there's a highway. (laughs) Because if there isn't, then where would we get our water, right? So it's always been full of poverty. It's crushed, constant war, many people fighting over it. It's not a happy place. Now suddenly you've got these these Galilean fishermen who are like, if I sign up with this dude who I think is the Messiah, I am going to have a great life. We're going to take over the world. All of our enemies are going to be vanquished. I'm going to have food every night to eat. I might live in a nice house. 
my enemies are gone. Why isn't it all, you know, that sounds amazing. And Jesus is basically telling them, you're wrong about that too. <laughs> you're wrong about that too. You know, it wasn't, wasn't a prosperity gospel. <clears throat> Obviously, they didn't understand all that even when he was here. Yes. Until he died yes. and then rose again, they realized exactly. all this truth that, that they, uh, how they're going to live their lives. Serving him. Yep. And it wasn't going to be prosperous. Right. It's going to lead to death. Mm hmm. Exactly, Tim. Exactly. And even, and even then, it's like, did they get it, right? They seem to get it, and then they kind of don't get it, and then they seem to get it. But then he's also, like, he's kind of encouraging, like, yeah. he's warning them, but he's also kind of encouraging them. He's saying, like, I've told you this to keep you from giving up. Like, he wants them to know, like, this is what's going to happen, but don't give up, you know? And one of the big encouragements he is, is talking about in this evening is the promise of the Holy Spirit. So let's read that because we, we talked a little bit about that in verse 14. Jesus promised the Holy Spirit around verse 15, talking about this, this spirit that's coming. Now, the other thing to keep in mind here is you have to remember for a first century Jew, where did God's Holy Spirit reside? In the temple. The temple. Uh, in the ark. Yes. So blowing up this whole thing here. <laughs> We have a temple. In Jerusalem, there is a temple on a mountain called what? Mount. Starts with a Z. Zion. Zion. Yes. Mount Zion. This hill or mountain, if you want to call it, in Jerusalem has a temple on it in which has been built the structure that is the physical representation of God's holy, heavenly abode in the center of the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest went once a year on the Day of Atonement. They, he didn't even go in there. No one went in there the rest of the year. And only the high priest once a year. Within the temple itself, only the priests were allowed. Um, and then, of course, as you get out, you know, of course, we've talked about this as, a, as an onion peeling back of society. The men could be here, the women out here. Point is, God's Holy Spirit resided in the center of the temple in the Holy of Holies. His footstool was the Ark of the Covenant. Okay. God's Holy Spirit resided in here, and by the first century, there was not just a curtain, but like a, but but like basically dividing walls that that you would close to close off this this holy area. That was by God's command in the Old Testament that it would be built like this to, to house his spirit on earth. But now Jesus is talking about his Holy Spirit coming after he leaves to be given to humanity. What do you think that the, the first century Jew is hearing this? What do you think they're thinking? What does this sound like to you? First of all, think back to the Old Testament. When God's spirit was made manifest to humans, who saw that spirit in general or experienced it? Prophets. Prophets. Or like, you know, like in the period of the judges, the judges, like mm -hmm. God's spirit would come upon them like Samson. Okay. Like he had power. So 
<clears throat> in the Old Testament, God's Holy Spirit was temporary. He would come upon people. They would do certain miraculous acts, and then it would, it would depart. It would come upon prophets. We just got done with Ezekiel in, in, our, um, in our main uh, you know, lesson in church. It would come upon a prophet, and, and the prophet would then be, would see the glory of God on his throne or reveal to him in light and thunder and lightning. Moses saw his Holy Spirit on, on um, Mount uh, Sinai. <clears throat> but every time that happened, it was this amazing manifestation. It was revealed to a small number of people, and when it happened, some terrible things would happen <laughs> or, or amazing things would happen, right? <clears throat> God's Holy Spirit in the Old Testament was never for the masses. It just wasn't. It wasn't for the common person, the common guy, you know, digging the ditch, or feeding his livestock, or um, hammering out uh, metal wood metalwork for swords or tools. They never experienced God's Holy Spirit. That was reserved specially for special cases and special people. Now you've got this guy here who's already saying all these things that you thought were true or not true. Now he's saying God's Holy Spirit is going to come, and guess what? And I'll, and I'll refer back to our chapter 14. <clears throat> I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor or intercessor. We talked about that, paraclete. To be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him, not it, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he lives with you and will be in you. He will not leave you as orphans. This is like, What? <laughs> So let's read more. He's like, I'm not done telling you about the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, and we'll just read the rest. Verse 5 to 33. Who would like to read that for me? But now I'm going away to the one who sent me, and not one of you is asking where I'm going. Instead, you grieve because of what I've told you. But in fact, it is best for you that I go away, because if I didn't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. The world's sin is that it refuses to believe in me. Righteousness is available because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. Judgment will come because the ruler of this world has already been judged. There is so much more I want to tell you, but you can't bear it now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, but will tell you what he has heard. He will tell you about the future. He will bring me glory by telling you whatever he receives from me. All that belongs to the Father is mine. This is why I said the Spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. In a little while you won't see me anymore, but a little while after that you will see me again. Some of the disciples asked each other, What does he mean when he says, In a little while you won't see me, but then you will see me? and I am going to the Father. And what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand. <laughs> Jesus realized they wanted to ask him about it, so he said, Are you asking yourselves what I meant? I said in a little while you won't see me, but a little while after that you will see me again. I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn over what is going to happen to me, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will suddenly turn to wonderful joy. It will be like a woman suffering the pains of labor. Where her child is born, her anguish gives way to joy because she has brought a new baby into the world. So you will have sorrow now, but I will see you again, 
Then you will rejoice, and no one can rob you of that joy. At that time you won't need to ask me for anything. I tell you the truth, you will ask the Father directly, and he will grant your request because you use my name. You haven't done this before. Ask using my name, and you will receive, and you will have abundant joy. I have spoken these matters in figures of speech, but soon I will stop speaking figuratively and will tell you plainly all about the Father. Then you will ask in my name. I'm not saying I will ask the Father on your behalf. The Father himself loves you dearly because you love me and believe that I came from God. Yes, I came from the Father into the world, and now I will leave the world and return to the Father. Then his disciples said, At last you are speaking plainly and not figuratively. Now we understand that you know everything, and there is no need to question you. From this we believe that you came from God. Jesus asked, Do you finally believe? But the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when you will be scattered, each one going his own way, leaving me alone. Yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. I have told you all of this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Thank you. There's a lot to unpackage there. Yeah. <laughs> this is like the cheesecake you get at the end of your meal. You're like, well, all the calories are coming at the end. Uh, I should have started with this. <clears throat> what do you What do you guys take from this? Because I got a whole bunch I can unpackage for you. I think to start off with, I almost stopped mm-hmm. back to the first couple verses. Um, you know, he says um, says he's going away, and nobody's asking where he's going. Um, instead, you grieve because of what I've told you. So, you know, to me, what's happening is the disciples are more worried about what's going to happen to them yes. than what's happening yes. to Jesus. They, they grasp the idea, okay, something's going to happen to Jesus, it's yep. not going to be good. Where does that leave me? Yes. Yep. Well, they don't understand he's going to be killed yet, right? He keeps telling them, I'm going away. And they yeah, keep going, yeah. what do you mean you're going away? He's like, what do you think? Taking a three-day vacation. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and going to Cyprus. It's beautiful there. Yeah, that's it. <clears throat> that's it. Why do you think they don't... See, this gets at the thing about... He's telling them, but they don't, they don't, want, to, they don't want to accept it. I keep telling you I'm going away. I'm going away. I'm not going to be with you. For, you, know, you tell your kids, I'm not going to be with you forever, so I want you to be able to make good decisions on your own, right? And they're like, well, what do you mean? They know what you mean. They know. They don't want to accept it. <laughs> but they said they understood what he was saying, and they weren't going to have to ask him anymore. Yeah. Well... Oh, they're still going to ask you. <laughs> That's right. It's like, oh, we get it, we get it. What does he mean? Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. What does that tell you about the Holy Spirit? That's, that's a good one. And it's all part of the plan. Okay. You know? So Jesus came to maybe prepare the way, and, and he fulfilled his purpose. And then the Holy Spirit is intended to come after that to be with everyone. Nice. So did they understand what, who the Holy Spirit was? 
that it was going to be in them. That's what he said. I don't understand what the Holy Spirit is. I mean, quite honest with you, I don't understand it, and I don't know if they do. Yeah. Do you think that they under like realized that this advocate was the same as what had happened in the Old Testament, or did they think it was something different? You know. Think about it this way. Um, the the Greek for this this intercessor, parakletos or paraclete, um, means basically a lawyer, and, and you think lawyer in a bad way, but it's not. It's, it's, I have to go before a judge. I need to plead my case because the judge could decide pretty much anything he wants. And I need to plead my case so that he stands on my side. So, so Jesus is using terminology that would mean something to them in this case um, to plead their case before a judge. I think they understood God as the judge. They knew what that meant. That's, if there was one thing a Jew knew about God, that he's a judge and he's all powerful and he has their life in, in his hands. What I think is the new thing here is the advocate part. Um, maybe not so much. I mean, if you think about Moses, Moses was an intercessor for the, for the Hebrews and that's very clear from, from the Torah. Moses repeatedly acted on the side of, of the Hebrews to get them out of trouble with God. So in some ways, I think he's making a very clear parallel with, with what they would understand from, from, the, Holy, from uh, the Old Testament. But the difference here is in the, the, the execution of that. It's not one guy that's coming. And that probably is what's throwing them. It's not a new Moses. Look, it's not another Moses I'm sending to you. It's someone who's going to intercede for all of you, and he's going to intercede for everyone. And he's going to live with it. Now, Moses didn't live with it anyway. I don't know how spiritual you are or what you think Moses was. He was a human being who lived and died. and was one guy. He didn't live in anyone's heart. So now God is mixing, or and I'll say Jesus, is mixing two things. He's mixing the idea of an intercessor like Moses with the reality of God's Holy Spirit. Now, this is a new thing. This is like when Jacques Pepin decides to find some, you know, all of the, the leftovers and mix them together, right? This is, this is the rat tattooey <laughs> of, of, of Christianity. You're mixing things together that have not been mixed before, and it's, it's making you say, like, what am I eating? <laughs> what is this? It's delicious. I don't know what I'm eating. In reg he will, when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness. You have to understand what convict means. And I had a, a you know, poor Laura, she gets up on Sunday morning, she comes down to eat her breakfast and I, I launch into it all, right? <laughs> uh, you know, cause I'm, I'm busy, you know, prepping and, and she's like, oh, can I just eat my Cheerios in peace? No, she's not like that, she's very good. But, but I, I, you know, I kind of launched into this whole thing about, you know, an English translation cannot do justice to the original meaning of the Greek. And I only mean that, not that Greek is special, but that when you translate something, you can't ever make a one-to-one -one translation, word-to-word -word and sentence-to-sentence. -sentence. The editors who made your English version of your New Testament, whatever that is, made every attempt to try and bake in as much meaning to every word that they put in a one-to-one, -one, but you just can't do that. So when you look at the word for convict, elenko, Elenco means to it means to convict or confront someone, but it also means to rebuke them. And then you say, okay, well, convict kind of means that, but then it's more it's more than that. What it means is, wh why do you rebuke someone? 
What's the goal of rebuking someone? Is it just to make them feel bad? Turn them around. Yes, this is exactly it. This is 100% it that you can't just get from one word in the English. The goal of the Holy Spirit is to convict pretty much every human being on this planet of their wrong, their sinful nature, their wrong actions, and to turn their lives around so that they seek Jesus to find the only life they're going to find in the universe, Jesus. To accept Jesus for who he is and his teaching and to turn their life around. That's his goal. So what is the Holy Spirit? <laughs> you know, I don't know about you, but a first century Jew is thinking, mm, that's not really what I get from the Holy Spirit in God's temple here. God's temple isn't here to like make, a, certainly not to make every Gentile on earth a believer of God. This is a place to be respected, to be honored, to be feared. And that's why only one person can go in once a year. The interesting part is that we receive the Holy Spirit once we are a Christian, right? Yes. So he's convicting Christians. It's not yes. just like, you know, people who don't know Jesus. It's like, even as a Christian, you still need to be rebuked and like mm -hmm. turned around from your wrong this is way it. of thinking, right? The Holy Spirit is to rebuke all. Don't, don't make no mistake about it. He rebukes everyone, but he lives within who? What you just said. Christians. Christians. And, and, and I, I am glad you said that because it's, it, you know, call, call Christian and what you want. Christian has a different meaning. A believer of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus has him living within him. And then to Laura's point, the rebuking has just begun, folks. <laughs> the rebuking has just begun. It's, it's kind of a convincing process, yeah. too. It's yes. a revealing of what's true. So it, it may not be that you're off base, but it's to tell you what is the base, what is right. I agree. I love that. That's it. And when you convince someone, <laughs> social media today does a horrible job of proving what convincing means. In social media parlance, convincing means to bash someone over the head with your point of view and tell them they're idiots. How many people change their minds because of social media posts? Big fat zero, folks. So stop doing it. It doesn't work. Convince means to lay out a logical argument through evidence and experience to prove a case. And I'll tell you what, right now, there are still people on this earth that think the earth is flat. We never landed on the moon. And uh, that the sun rotates around the earth. No matter how much evidence you give to people, there are always some people who will reject all evidence. The Holy Spirit does its best, his best, right? But humans are humans. They have free will. They can choose whether to accept it or not. And it's not some kind of magic. It's not some kind of magic. Because men do not believe in me. In regards to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. Now there's a pretty clear statement, Tim. Right. I'm going to the Father, you're not going to see me. Hmm, what does he mean by that, right? That's right. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world, who is who? Yep. Satan. The devil. Oh, what did you say? <laughs> right? Okay. It's okay. No, it's okay. I mean, there's a lot of princes yeah, of this world, let's be honest. Maybe you said Trump. I don't know. Uh, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Here's another place where the English can't do it justice. Now stands condemned. The Greek here is the perfect 
tense. What do I mean by that? It means an action that has already been completed and is thus you are, you are participating in the fruits of that completion. The prince of this world, according to Jesus, when he said this, is not he will be condemned. It's not the future. And it's not the present tense, meaning he is being condemned in regards to judgment because the prince of this world has been condemned. It is finished. It is finished. Jesus' work on this earth condemned Satan and broke him of his rule over humanity with death. That's awesome. We are, folks, we are not waiting for something in the future. Jesus doesn't win at the end of Revelation. He does. He wins at the end of Revelation, but he's already won. And that's what people can't get in their mind. Jesus already won. He, the game is over. Uh, this is a terrible analogy. You know, you watch like the day after some like hokey 80s movie about nuclear war, right? And the airmen in the bunker in Montana, um, all of a sudden they get all these, these alerts that the Russians have launched these, nu- you know, hundreds of nuclear missiles at the United States. <clears throat> they haven't arrived yet. They've launched them. All of a sudden, a whole bunch of guys just, they, they, they flee. They get out of the bunker and they get in their cars and they start driving home. And, and one of them goes, why are you leaving? And they look back at him and go, the war is over. The war is already over. The missiles are on their way and as soon as they get here, it's annihilation. The world, the world will be destroyed. And the guy couldn't accept that. This is a terrible analogy. Why did I even bring that? It's not a war. He's not an- annihilating the earth. But if you think about it, it's the same idea. Jesus is here. He's on the earth. He is 12 hours from now about to die on a cross for the sins of humanity, and death will be broken. It has been broken. It will be broken. And they I don't know about you. I can't understand that. How, how is a disciple supposed to understand that? That's why he talked about the Holy Spirit, because yes. once he's gone, he's, well, since he's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, that's what he's going to do. He said, the Holy Spirit will be with you. Continue to understand. And guess what? I was just thinking about this yesterday, about how history repeats itself. I got this whole, you know, pandemic thing, whatever. Fear. Fear is ruling the world right now. Um, I don't care what you believe as far as your political stance. I am a scientist. I have a PhD in disease. I understand. I think I understand what's going on here. But the world isn't being ruled right now by science and knowledge and logic. It's being ruled by fear. Now, everyone can agree to that. Fear overrides reason. But the thing is, this is nothing new. Throughout all of humanity, humans have been ruled by fear. From various times in our history, where fear overrides all thought and reason and logic. And I was thinking yesterday about this and how, well, when people finally figure it out, guess what? They die because they're old. <laughs> now we start over again. We start over. The disciples are finally figuring this out. I do, I do believe they're finally figuring this out, Tim. And guess what? They're going to die. And this whole generation of people who never met Jesus personally, who never heard Jesus speak, are going to be taught the things that Jesus said and we're all going to be like, I don't know what they're talking about. Guess what? I totally agree with this. That's what the Holy Spirit is here to do. Welcome to the world. My name is the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to teach you things. I'm going to teach you what Jesus said. I 
and just look how fast it spread. Yeah. You know, like, you, you know, you look at the map and you're like, okay, Jesus was right there in three years in that little space, talked to a few people, and then, you know, boom, after he was gone and it just exploded because Holy Spirit and people and spread out. That's pretty amazing. Spread faster than any other religion in human history. Yeah, you know, something else that's going on here, and I'm jumping ahead a little yeah. bit, is you know, like in verse 23 at that time, you won't need me to ask for anything. I yeah. tell you the truth. You ask, you know, Father directly in mm-hmm. my name. This is a whole new way of communicating to God. Oh, yes. In that, you know, instead of going for the priest, going through all these gyrations, you're able to now go directly to the mm-hmm. Father in Jesus' name. You know, in, you know, on behalf of Jesus, you're going to the Father. This is great. Here's here's me. I'm a shepherd. <laughs> I got my shepherd's crook. I'm a shepherd with my turban. Um, <laughs> I have to talk to a rabbi, right? And he's got the Torah in his hand. That rabbi has to talk to a priest. You know, he's got the turban. He has to talk to a high priest. He's got a really big crown. I don't know. It's a really big turban. And he has to go talk to God. <clears throat> to your point, guess what we're going to do? <laughs> we're cutting out all the middlemen, right? <clears throat> cutting out all the middlemen. Dan made an interesting point last week in, in the sermon about prayer and how sometimes certain groups get upset yep. when they hear someone pray in Jesus' name. you got to leave Jesus out of your prayer. you just got to say uh-huh. amen or whatever. And you know, He made the statement, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, but I don't do that. I can't yep. do that. Mm-hmm. We go to God <clears throat> through Jesus, not because mm-hmm. it's me, Dan, or mm-hmm. because it's me, whoever mm-hmm. you are. And Jesus, you know, some people read this and go, this, this is a good point. And I think it's where it's misinterpreted here. <clears throat> Let me see it here again. Let me see here. In that day you will ask in my name. Well, right there, that's biblical. Right there, I will ask in Jesus' name. But I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. And I think this is the point, is that, again, Jesus is not saying, okay, you come talk to me and I'll talk to him, right? (laughs) Why does he say in his name? Oh, this is really good. And I forgot to mention this. This is really, really, really important. Um, What we mean by the name of someone. In Greek, it's anima. This is on um, uh, <clears throat> the name of something in antiquity was not a designation. This is really hard for us to understand in the age of robots and computers and pets. A name is not a designation in the first century, meaning this is the serial number three five five four eight one two three four that I call something, right? It's not your social security number, it's not your seven of nine, you know, you're not a Borg, right? You're not a drone. In antiquity, a name was inherently tied to your character and who you were as a person. For instance, when people were born in antiquity, no one came up with names before kids were born in antiquity. This might surprise you, I don't know. They didn't go through the book and say, oh, look at all these great names. We whittled it down to five if it's a boy and five if it's a girl, right? And maybe, you know, we're going to name them, uh, you know, this new thing that we've never heard of before. And it's a, you know, it's already decided. In antiquity, 
it was it was almost universal that that babies were born and then the parents would take a look at that baby <clears throat> and judge it by its character it was either <laughs> it was either skinny or it was fat or it was it was hairy right or it was like you know bald why did uh, you point to Nicole? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, right it's like Brian's red. Ruddy. No, I was thinking of Esau. I was thinking of Esau. And you're not Esau. Bless your heart. I can't win. I'm not going to win. And you got to bless your heart. Um, right? The, the, and sometimes it would take days, weeks, even months before the... Look, in the antiquity, the baby was the baby. That was its name. Until we, we understood its character, its nature. Maybe it was precocious. Maybe it was scheming. Um, then it got a name. You have to understand that when the, the New Testament writer says the name of God, let's back it up here. Where does it say that? Say, I told you, do, 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 do. I want to get this right. It came in the name of, of God. He says that over and over, and we just heard it here again at the very end. Coming in the name of God, the reason, and, and, you, and you say my name, it doesn't mean Jesus. Now you can say, in Jesus' name, amen. What it's saying is, in the character of Jesus, in the character of God, that's what name means. It doesn't mean a designation. When you pray to God, you pray to God in the spirit of Jesus. So it's in, not abracadabra? Yes, thank you. It's not an incantation, right? Yeah. You know, levitate. Right. It's more of a signaling of where your heart is. You're saying it much better than I can. That's it. It isn't, it isn't the fact that you end your prayer with a certain regurgitation yes. Yes. of something. It's, you're doing that because that's where your heart was to that's begin it. with. And guess what? If your heart isn't right and you're saying that, you're just speaking to the wall. You're, you just summed up Jesus and his ministry to the Pharisees. How often did they spout all the scripture and say all these fancy words and call out God's name and right and it was empty it was empty and that that proves my point to a certain degree that the, that the designation is not the same as who who the nature of god is that they're talking about here that's very important to point out okay um any final thoughts before we wrap up join us next week because 17 is like i could do four weeks on it there's a lot there that is the cheesecake <laughs> That's like the triple tr chocolate truffle cheesecake <laughs> with the frosting and Lots of the chocolate lava cake. Yes, yes. It smells delicious. It does. It is. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All right. Butterscotch on the vanilla bean ice cream. You know, maybe it's all of the above, right? It's the entire Cheesecake Factory menu. So there's my plug. Maybe I'll get like a check from them. All right. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week.